Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I speak with Imade, who runs a nonprofit organization called Depressed While Black. We speak about her experience with borderline personality disorder and depression. Here she is talking about her experience as a black person in a mental institution. I was first introduced to these disparities when the two grads counselors, you know, told me like, look, like you got to drop out of school and you, you got to go in a police car to the hospital. I mean, in that moment, I realized that this is the textbook, you know, template that they give to people and it may work for rich white people because rich white people have money so that they'll still have insurance if they leave their grad school program. Uh, rich white people will probably not be threatened as much by the police and being in the back of a cop car the, in the way that I would. And so I started to notice, you know, they treat us differently. When I was hospitalized, I noticed that, you know, black women were being chemically restrained. They were drooling on themselves. They were basically permanently in the isolation room. They were just constantly, it felt like they were constantly being drugged to the point where they couldn't speak up. For, for themselves. They couldn't express who they are. This podcast is made possible by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller for early access to extended episodes of this program, along with a myriad of other content. You can also go to tristanjmiller.com for my stand-up comedy tour dates. I hope you enjoy listening to Amade as much as I did speaking with her. Now, um, you started Depressed While Black while you were in Columbia, right? Yeah, um, I started writing about my experiences and I called the thesis Depressed While Black. And I was just simply just trying to graduate. It wasn't anything, yeah. you know, huge that I was trying to do. I just wanted to fulfill my, you know, obligation as a student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and how did you put together that thesis? I mean, I assume you were talking about your own experience yeah. with depression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I thought that I didn't have anything to write about, to be honest with you. But um, I remember that, you know, I, I was speeding on a Los Angeles highway, wanted to die just a year before. And it started this whole journey of me figuring out what was wrong with me and got a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And so the, the, the book kind of follows that, that journey. What was that process like? Yeah, it was a really intense uh, moment. Um, I was really messed up when I walked into um, my uh, program's uh, counseling center. Um, there were two uh, counselors that sat before me um, I was crying. Um, I was barely showering. You know, I wasn't really uh, dressing appropriately. Uh, mm-hmm. I was wearing a lot of baggy clothes. And the two counselors told me that I needed to uh, drop out of school and get a police escort to the hospital. Wow. And that was kind of my wake up call of like, oh, wow, this is what the mental health system is like. I have to go to the hospital in the back of a police car. And so I did not want that. Um, I lived in South Central LA and, you know, my interaction with the police was the police helicopter shaking the house and Mm -hmm. their light beams um, just waking me up in the middle of the night. 
Um, so I did not have a, a good in encounters with the police. They were sure. basically an occupying force in the South Central neighborhood that I lived in. And so, yeah, I said, I don't want that. Can I get, can I, can we do something else? And they were like, well, you can go to outpatient, which is basically kind of a, a day, a day hospital service for people with mental health challenges. But that was too expensive. It was $3,000. That was totally outside of my budget as a student, as a grad student. And so, yeah, I was like, no, can't afford that either. What, what else? Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, we can, you know, get you to a, a therapist. And so that was my first entry point into getting a diagnosis was uh, through that. And was that the first time that those issues had presented themselves or had you been dealing with depression before that? Yeah, I was dealing with depression before then, but that was a true rock bottom moment for me where I was like, okay, I can't ignore this. I can't act like I can outwork my way out of this depression. Like this is this is bad <laughs> and yeah. I can't, I can't act like it doesn't exist. But yeah, before then, you know, just growing up as a kid, I, I definitely had low moods. Um, I played basketball and I was really moved if I was, uh, if we lost a game or if I didn't get a lot of playing time, I was, it really bothered me. Um, it was difficult for me to kind of get myself out of those low moods. But uh, when I really dealt with like serious depression was when I graduated um, in the middle of the recession and was unemployed and dealt with all of that. So that was kind of my yeah. first entry point around when I was like 20, 21. Yeah. And how did you first go about managing those moods? I mean, I felt like I, I did my good Christian response, you know, prayed, read scriptures. Mm -hmm. That was really the only option that was presented to me that this is the only way really you treat depression was through prayer, uh, through scripture, through having a pastor pray for you. Um, I didn't have any other examples of any other way of, you know, dealing with depression outside of those ways. And once you started seeing a therapist, uh, what was that like? Yeah, so I had a very different notion of therapy because the only it, only like experience or the only representation that I saw of like black people going to therapy was Joan Clayton on Girlfriends, and mm -hmm. she had this like fancy therapist, and she was in this like fancy like reclining chair and. She just had so much money. And so I really didn't know if my experience would be like that or not. Um, and so, yeah, my first experience, you know, I walked into this like really old bank, like really old bank building in downtown LA. And, you know, I went into this elevator and it was one of those like really old elevators where it gave me this memory of like, oh man, there's probably where black people responsible for like opening and closing this elevator so I already felt yeah, like yeah. just through the door um that you know maybe I shouldn't be here maybe mm -hmm. you know as a black woman I, maybe I shouldn't be here and so um but then when I got upstairs the therapy like waiting room looked like an urgent care waiting room like it looked so normal and there were like people magazines everywhere and those oversized lamps and those like mm -hmm. low end tables and so I was like oh okay like this is starting to look more like what I'm familiar with. Um, and then like, and I walked into the therapy room and it was like a couch. Um, it was like a regular pillow that I see everywhere. It was very yeah, yeah. normal. So my brain built up all this, you know, 
these ideas of like, I don't belong here. Historically, black people were never here, so why should I be here? And then I get there and it looks so normal. The therapist is, is a white woman, an older white woman, and she looks like my like third grade teacher. She looks like a, you know, she looks like somebody that was like, hey, Miss Allison, you know, like I feel like I would know her from school or somewhere. And yeah. so I was really surprised that, you know, it was just, it was a very like familiar experience in some ways. Um, and then the therapist was really calm and like comforting and understanding. Um, and, but I thought that she would just say, you know, oh, you'll get through this, you'll get better, it's fine. And I wasn't expecting her to say like, you have major depressive disorder, this is a mm. serious condition. <laughs> and <laughs> you go to therapy and possibly need to take antidepressants. I was not ready for that. Yeah, so how'd you handle that? It's since it was a surprise, how'd you feel? Yeah, I thought that depression was a white person disease. I did not think <laughs> it, I, it was possible to even be clinically diagnosed with depression. I was just like, this is impossible. You know, I grew up thinking and being told that we're stronger. We went through more things. Mm -hmm. We're basically indestructible is, is what I was taught. And I know that was a coping mechanism in response to the world saying that, you know, we aren't valuable. We, we aren't people who have um, intrinsic worth. And, and so it makes sense that I was, you know, given that messaging, but it didn't help when I do need to acknowledge that I am depressed and I am weak and I am struggling. Mm -hmm. And did the therapy help right away? The therapy did, the, the therapy did help. Um, I did get better um, throughout that, that school year at USC in grad school. Mm -hmm. um, I started um, kind of volunteering. Um, so my therapist encouraged me to kind of get out the house. I was literally in the house all day as a depressed person. So I got out the house. I started volunteering. Um, I started having a healthier relationship with the work that I was doing and, and kind of having uh, not pushing so much pressure on myself to do everything this short amount of time. Um, so yeah, I was meeting people. Um, I was engaging with my, my fellow students. So I was doing better, but I was still hesitant to get on, on antidepressants because mm -hmm. of that, that idea that, you know, was put in my head, you know, Christians don't get on medication. We pray. If you're on medication, it means that you're, you know, your faith is inferior. And so I still had that complex. And so I did everything that I could, every spiritual thing that I could to, to not get to that point. And did you like finally have to get to the, the point where you are on medication? Yeah, I had this really weird thing happen to me. So I was doing all these things and not get on any press and all these spiritual things. So that yeah. led me to a, a deep healing prayer session at this um, uh, organization's house of prayer. And the minister led me through like all, all my childhood memories and mm -hmm. wanted me to see the presence of Jesus in these childhood memories. And it was really impactful and emotional. Um, and I thought that was it. That was the, that was the whole experience. Um, but then at the end, um, the minister told me, he was like, you need to get on antidepressants. You know, my father got on medication and I got my father back. And so mm -hmm. that was something that took a huge weight off of my shoulders and it, it validated me and it made me feel like, oh yeah, I have permission, I can do this. And so mm -hmm. I, immediately after that minister told me that I got on medication. 
I suppose that would feel like literally God's blessing to go forth and do it. That must have been very, (laughs) very soothing. Do you still uh, keep the faith now? Not as much. I I got, Mm -hmm. I think I got burnout. Um, I think (laughs) dealing with chronic uh, suicidality, chronic depression, it is just a, a daily wear and tear on your faith, a daily wear and tear on some of the, the messages that you, you grow, grow up with. And so, yeah, I'm not in that same place at all, but I recognize how holding on to that faith is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm still alive and I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And you received a dual diagnosis of borderline personality disorder as yeah, well, right? later. Yeah. yeah, how'd that happen? So when you asked me, did therapy help? I was a yeah. little because I was like, well, the therapy would have helped for someone else who had, <laughs> who didn't sure. have borderline personality disorder, you know? Like, yeah. So the therapy that I was getting mostly was cognitive behavioral therapy, which is great. Um, it's a great treatment modality, uh, but it's not the best for people who have borderline personality disorder. Um, mm-hmm. And so for, I had therapy for about eight years on and off. And I didn't ultimately get better. I was just as suicidal. I was just as impulsive. I had so many emotional regulation issues. My relationships were a wreck. Um, It was ridiculous. And so, but I was in therapy and I didn't understand like why I was not really getting better. And that was because basically I had undiagnosed borderline personality disorder and what some of these therapists were doing and they were some of them were really good therapists. I'm not knocking them, but they were doing this thing where they would notice the symptoms but not directly tell me. And uh-huh. so as early as around, I believe, 2014, 2015, I had a therapist uh, recommend um, a DBT book, a dialectical behavioral therapy workbook that you know, DBT is typically for people with borderline personality disorder. And so as early as 24, 2014, I had a therapist that probably noticed the symptoms but never told me. Um, And then moving on from there, um, I had another therapist and it started to get to the point where I was like, I think I may have borderline personality disorder given this, how I, I have a lot of these symptoms. And the therapist told me, you know, let's just treat the symptoms, not the condition. Mm-hmm. And just consistently was like, yeah, let's not go there to that place. Yeah. And I was not of that opinion, given the fact that, you know, <laughs> if you have borderline personality disorder, it requires a certain type of treatment that I need to yeah. get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And yeah. how did you go about getting that treatment finally? So I had to leave that therapist and I went to another therapist who had uh, experience uh, doing dialectical behavioral therapy. And so the, this therapist, you know, she had a lot on her hands. I mean, I was a mess mm-hmm. uh, coming to her. Um, I did not have any type of grounding skills or any type of understanding of mindfulness. Um, I was coming in basically, if I was suicidal, I'm going to do something reckless. That, that was who I was coming into this therapy. And so she had to help me a lot, um, try to create some distance between the urges and my actions and really making sure that I, I don't act on the first thing that I do. And so literally all she said was like, Imade, like, let's not make this worse. 
like, let's not make this worse. I know I tired her out, um, but I but I needed her so much. And she kind of mm-hmm. helped me start using DBT techniques. And then eventually um, I left um, the area uh, because uh, I was living in San Francisco and just the environment of like how expensive it is in San Francisco was yeah. fueling a lot of my mental health crises. Yeah, so I moved and eventually started a class, a DBT class um, in January of this year. I've been in it every week since January, and that's what's kind of helped me get better. Good, good. And um, for those who don't know, uh, what's the difference between DBT and more traditional versions of therapy? Yeah, uh, DBT, for me, what helps me is that it acknowledges that there's going to be times when my emotions are so intense that I'm not going to be able to do some of the CBT techniques where I analyze, you know, is this thought, you know, matches reality, you know, Mm -hmm. or is this all or nothing thinking? Is this black or white thinking? Like there's times when I'm so in like, like have these overwhelming intense emotions that I, I can't really do much of anything. And so what I love about DBT is that they have skills in place for when you are at like a 10 that can help bring you down, like the stop skill, literally like taking a step back, observing what's going on, what's going around you, the tip skill, where you literally dunk your head in cold water. It's so dramatic, but my emotions are dramatic. So I need this skill. So like you dunk your head in cold water, you do intense exercise, you do progressive muscle relaxation and like paired breathing. So like these things are really helpful for folks who have really intense emotions and we may not be able to do some of the the skills of a CBT, but then also it helps you with everyday maintenance. It helps you with, you know, interpersonal effectiveness and dealing with other people and trying to have healthy relationships. So all of the skills are kind of related to the symptoms that I have. So it's, it's been a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> glad to hear that. And you're saying your moods were often low growing up, you know, yeah. or could dip there. Whereas also the, um, I guess, volatile emotions, were they also there growing up? Yeah, yeah. I had anger issues. I still have anger issues, to be honest. Um, But yeah, I had anger issues growing up. And the only time that I felt safe to express my anger was on the court, like playing basketball. And um, I think because there was so few avenues to express my anger that I didn't really know how to express it properly. And so I would just wait until it got all like just balled up in me and then I would express and unload every single thing and then I would be calm afterwards but then there'll be all this destruction that I have to deal with yeah um and so yeah I I didn't really have great um anger uh issues I mean anger regulation issues growing up yeah you have a website and you have a book coming out called depressed well black based off of the 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 paper how did that come about yeah, so, okay, so with Depressed Well Black, it's been a journey. The book has been a huge journey. Um, you know, I went to Columbia. I got a nonfiction MFA. So, you know, they kind of gas us up in this grad school program, basically like, look, you're going to get a, you're going to get a deal, you know, you'll, you'll mm-hmm. be fine. But then they'll slide this in at the end, like, maybe you need to babysit. Maybe you need to be a waitress. And so you're uh-huh. getting these, like, two different messages of, like, yeah, you're going to get your book deal, but also prepare to be 
really poor and rely on your mom's money, which doesn't mm-hmm. make sense because not everyone has parents' money to you know help them. But yeah, so it's been a long journey. Um, I'm at a point right now with the book where I'm just kind of letting it happen. Um, so mm-hmm. the thing that I really w- would like to have is a literary agent to help shepherd the book and help me get a book deal. Um, and I'm in the process of like building a relationship with one literary agent for that to potentially happen. But because mm-hmm. of the way my mental health is, um, I don't know if I can like go hard in the paint with yeah. the literary world. I dealt with a rejection um, in February and I, it caused me to be so immobilized. I was in bed all week. So mm-hmm. I am trying to tread lightly and just mm-hmm. do what I can, but it will come out. The, the book will definitely come out, um, mm-hmm. but I'm still figuring out the avenue to, to put it out. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And does that get in the way, your, your moods, does it get in the way of actually like writing and, and creating the book itself too oh, and yeah. other pieces? Yeah. So basically the bulk of the book is, is, is written. Um, mm-hmm. And so I need to just go back, do editing, and then add a, a section in about my, you know, mental hospital stay uh, and the experiences that I had there. Um, but yeah, I think what happens for me when it comes to depression is it, it, it inhibits my ability to problem solve. So when I experience a problem, depression makes me feel like the problem is insurmountable. I can't, I can't deal with it. I can't handle it and that, you know, I shouldn't be here. And so why, the reason why DPT is helping me so much is it's helping me understand that I can survive this (laughs) intense emotion, Mm -hmm. um, I can problem solve. I can figure out different ways of doing things. And so, yeah, my mental health has definitely uh, impacted it. And I'm still trying to figure out how can I um, have, like, hold space for my mental health challenges, but also not let those mental health challenges, like, completely derail me from what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's always very tricky to find that balance because you also don't want to, like, put all of your self-worth into the things you're making because exactly. if, like you said you get a rejection then you're you're done for a while yeah you know? um you stayed in a hospital what was that like what led up to yeah. that i was hospitalized twice um i was in the mental hospital in 2015 after i graduated from columbia and there is a connection with that <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. um I, in, in 2018 uh, as well so yeah, I've been hospitalized twice. Uh, it it was, for me, the first experience, especially, was a terrifying experience. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my roommate brought me to the emergency room, um, and it was in our neighborhood in, you know, uptown Manhattan, Washington Heights, mm-hmm. and that wasn't traumatic. Um, I had this weird thing where, so people with BPD, and this is not something I, I, I didn't know that then, people with BPD, we can like our moods can swing really quickly and so for some reason right after i attempted i was pretty much okay and i was like flirting (laughs) with the nurse and i was just like (laughs) it was just so like i was like you literally try to end your life and then like an hour later you try to get with this guy like what are you you 
<laughs> and so yeah, I was flirting with the nurse. I was pretty much fine. I was like looking through magazines. Like I was yeah. like pretty yeah. much okay. Um, but you know, the nurses were like, you know, you should go to this mental hospital called uh, Weird Cornell. You know, it's a great hospital. They have a lot of awards. And so I was like, okay, the nurses say this is a great place, you know, we'll, I'll go to it. But it was an hour up north in Westchester. Okay. Um, and the first, like the, the first, the first floor looked like a resort, like, like really like plush carpet. And they had a gift shop, like at a mental hospital. <laughs> like, <it was> so weird. <laughs>
try to speak reasonably and break it down in 1.1 and 0.2, but the odds were already stacked against me and the state Supreme Court judge said that I couldn't leave. And so the most that I could do is transfer to another floor so that I won't have to have that psychiatrist. And I just mm-hmm. took the meds they wanted me to take and, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And, you know, got out of there just by being compliant. Mm-hmm. And how did it feel coming out? Um, so my best friend at that time, we decided to throw a Frisbee on the lawn of the mental <laughs> hospital as like a middle finger to... <laughs> as a middle figure to this place to say, you know, you can't steal our joy. Like you can't yeah. steal it. And so, yeah, we threw a Frisbee on the lawn <laughs> and we went to Cheesecake Factory across the street. And it was, it felt like me getting out of prison, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like Imane getting out party. So yeah, that was, that was my experience. Um, Did you get yeah. anything from the gift shop? I, you know what I was, <laughs> that, that gift shop to this day makes me so angry. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Because this is the thing. Um, So the floor that I told you about that that was carpeted, that was like so, it looked so bougie, so nice. That was for the rich people. That was the amenities floor for people who paid to have separate separate care away from us poor folk. And so the gift shop and all of that, that was really for the rich people. It really wasn't for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that unfortunately, that makes sense. Um, was it difficult seeking care after that experience? Yeah, it actually was. Um, so after, you know, after I had, I had an experience in 2018 where I tried to end my life and I I did need medical care. Um, so I, I had to, I mean, I had to have, um, ambulance come and get me and, um, you know, you know, here I go again, you know, it was like the same thing where like you try to tell the guy, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you know, just don't let me, don't let me go to the hospital, <laughs> hospital again. And so, yeah. you know, I tried to, you know, do my best with like, fine, good, good. And so pretty much what happened was the, the nurse or the social worker that was assigned to me was like, either you come to this hospital um, voluntarily, or we're going to make you go here and you'll have less restrictions. So either way you're mm-hmm. coming. And so it was really kind of traumatic uh, dealing with that because um, not only did my first hospital stay uh, traumatize me, it traumatized my loved ones. And so for the second time around, you know, my mom was like, don't go, like, don't do this. Like, don't go back in, you know, like this is, it was really awful and like, don't go. And it was hard because I wanted to not go, but I had no choice. I had to go. And the second time around, it was less traumatic because I didn't understand what what it was going to be like. And I understood that, you know, in order to get out, you have to play the game. You got to be compliant. Yeah. You got to do whatever they tell you to do. And it was less traumatic because I already knew how to have to carry myself. Um, so I didn't have um, a huge protest moment like I did the first time. Um, and then, you know, what happened was for the second hospitalization, they put me at the bottom floor, which is what they do for a lot of Black folks. They put us at the most punitive level of care, where we have the, the most restrictions, where we can't go outside, we can't really do much anything. Um, but then they saw my behavior and how compliant I was. They moved mm-hmm. me up to um, a less restrictive floor, 
And somehow there were more white people on this floor <laughs> than the floor that I was on. Um, and miracles. it was, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty good. Um, we were allowed to have a, our, use our phones for parts of the day. Um, we had like recreational therapy. We were able to kind of walk outside. Um, it was, yeah, I would say it was a lot better experience, but it's really unfortunate that a lot of black folks don't get access to this type of care. Yeah. And you're, you're pushing to change some of that. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm working with beam, um, which is an amazing, phenomenal mental health organization that's led by black folks, black queer folks. Um, where we created a campaign called Build a Black Vision. And mm -hmm. the demands of this campaign is to defund the police and defund uh, psychiatric jails and hospitals like what I experienced. Yeah, so me and Beam are advocating for uh, just Black community-based mental health support so that instead of me, you know, getting shipped upstate, like I'm going to prison when I went to that mental hospital, I'm getting treated in my community and in my home so that my friends can visit me and not have all these issues. Yeah. Um, and also that I can see reflections of myself. I really want to have a future where I'm surrounded by Black peer support workers who have my lived experiences, who can tell me what it's like to be on certain medications or to be in certain uh, treatment centers. Um, I want to have uh, an experience where there is no police involvement because we know that um, people with untreated mental illness are 16 times as likely to be killed by the police, according to the Treatment Advocacy Center. You know, I want to have, you know, traditional Black um, healing uh, uh, traditions and, and activities involved with, you know, DBT and other treatment modalities. So, yeah, I want to I want to feel as if I'm leading my treatment plan and where I have control over what happens to my body and my mind. Yeah, that I think is a very reasonable request. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, exactly. It's pretty uh, strange that that's not being followed through. I mean, and, and not to be too on the nose, but the program, the website and the book and the, your Twitter account are all called depressed. Well, black. And yeah. what, from your observations, what are the, the differences between being a black person with, with mental health issues and, um, white people or other people of color? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was first introduced to these disparities when the two grads counselors, you know, told me like, look, like you got to drop out of school and you, you got to go to in a police car at a hospital. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that moment, I realized that this is the textbook, you know, template that they give to people and it may work for rich white people because rich white people have money so that they'll still have insurance if they leave their grad school program. Uh, rich white people will probably not be threatened as much uh, by by the police and being in the back of a cop car mm -hmm. the way, in the way that I would. And so I started to notice, you know, they treat us differently. When I was hospitalized, I noticed that, you know, black women um, were being chemically restrained. They were drooling on themselves. They were basically permanently in the isolation room. Um, they were just constantly it felt like they were constantly being drugged to the point where they couldn't speak up for, for themselves. They couldn't express who they are. Um, I noticed that young black men were being physically restrained. And the first night that I was in the hospital, uh, my first time being there, um, a man, a young black man was arrested and he was saying some of the same things that I was saying, you know, I hate it here. I hate the food. You know, I want to go home. I, I feel the same exact way. You know, he shouldn't have been arrested for that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I saw how punitive um, Black folks are being treated, and sadly, from people who look like us. So a lot of the, the nurse techs, the, the low-level um, and low, lower-paid um, workers in the hospitals are Black and brown folks, and they were carrying out anti-Black policies that were being given and directed by doctors that are mostly white and non-Black. Um, so there was a, kind of a whole plantation system that was happening in these mental hospitals, and I was recognizing and noticing this hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I mean that. Ugh, that sucks. Um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> I mean, what can you say? I mean, yeah, other than it off. sucks. Yeah. yeah, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, earlier, you mentioned uh having some anger issues you know growing up specifically yeah do you find it's difficult being allowed to express anger as a woman yeah i mean you're definitely dismissed as the angry black women and you're being gaslit you're being told that your experiences don't exist um you're being invalidated which happened to me in that hospital Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes me angrier. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. when you like when you tell me that I'm being over the top, like it makes me even more over the top. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, I'm still working on it. Like I'm working on my emotional regulation skills. Um, but yeah, like it makes me it makes my emotions like even more intense. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge for a lot of Black women is the fact that we're being told we don't have the right to be angry, or that our worth and our value is not enough to be heard and so for for me and you know for what I'm seeing as well from black trans women is like we're having to organize amongst ourselves because it seems like no one else is speaking up for us for our experiences and you know there's some a lot of great like therapy for black girls Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of great platforms now for black women that we had to create um, and also the Oprah Project that's providing free therapy for Black trans folks. Like we've, we're having to create our own spaces, not necessarily because we want to self-isolate, but because we're not being heard. And so our response to that invalidation is actually creating a platform where we can actually be centered. And you mentioned you're partnered with Beam. Yeah. I, I've seen them floating around my Twitter sphere, but I would love to lo- know a little bit more information about that organization. Beam is this incredible organization um, rooting in healing justice and healing ourselves and healing the structures that have harmed us in the past. Um, they do a lot of great work when it comes to um, dealing with and addressing toxic masculinity and reimagining new ways to, you know, approach the world that is inclusive, that is loving, that is not harming uh marginalized black communities. Um, They also do uh, healing spaces where black folks can gather virtually and process what they're feeling and experiencing, especially when it comes to the pandemic and the amount of loss that we're experiencing in our community and also police brutality. Um, So yeah, they're just an incredible organization. They're great facilitators uh, when they talk about uh, all sorts of transformative justice. Um, And they just do amazing, amazing work. What would your biggest piece of advice be for someone who's recently receiving a diagnosis of borderline and who's recently gotten out of a mental facility? Wow, that's, I mean, that's really difficult um, because... You know, people people with BPD in general um, 
are one of the most stigmatized communities in the mental health community. Yeah. And, um, you know, we can be denied service uh, because we have, you know, that condition on our record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that some of the apprehension of my past therapist in, you know, diagnosing me with BPDs because they probably thought they were protecting me because if it's on your record, um, people can use it as an excuse not to treat you because they, they'll say you're too difficult. They'll say um, you're too suicidal. You, and, and basically what they're saying is um, you're too much of a legal liability because mm-hmm. if something happens to you, then it's gonna fall on me. And it's terrible how the mental health system is set up, but it really is set up to protect people from, from a lawsuit when mm-hmm. actually these are people that are suffering that need help and need support. Um, so I would just say to people who have or newly diagnosed with BPD um, and that are out of the hospital, I'll just say that like, you're not a monster. Um, if you Google us, if you Google, I mean, it's terrible. The stuff that comes up about us is ridiculous. They make us think, they make me feel like I'm like the Kool-Aid man is gonna bust through like a, a brick wall or something. Like, <laughs> what are you, like, this is ridiculous. I'm a human being, it's like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just say like, you're not a monster. You're not what a lot of these clinicians say you are. And that, um, you know, find your tribe find um, your people, uh, follow the hashtag BPD, um, uh, hashtag on Twitter. Uh, A lot of folks who have the diagnosis, we we talk openly about our experiences. And I would just say, find your your tribe. Um, There's all sorts of online resources. Um, And I would say, try to look into a DBT class or a DBT therapist to kind of help get you on track. Uh, because, you know, the hospital, sometimes it's, sometimes you just have to re- recover from the trauma of the hospital, let alone mm-hmm. the trauma of what brought you in there. And so I would just say, just get DBT, get specialized care and figure out if there's ways that you can ask for scholarship or a sliding scale because DBT can be really expensive. Or you can go on Now Matters Now or uh, .com. They, they offer uh, DBT tools from the actual creator of DBT, Marsha Linehan. Um, you can buy the DBT workbook. Um, I would just say find specialized care and find your tribe. And it's okay if DBT does not make sense to you in the beginning. It really didn't make much sense to me as well. It takes like a lot of iterations, takes a lot of repetition to like really get it and to really see the benefit of it. So just, I would just say stick with it if you feel like it's not working in the beginning and just be patient with yourself because we are going through so many like emotional mechanisms at the same time, people with BPD. I mean, we can, in one day, we can be the happiest we ever been and we can be like the saddest we ever been. It is a lot going on in the inside of us. And I would just say, be patient and be kind to yourself. That's wonderful. Earlier, you said when you were going into your first therapist that you felt kind of out of place and uncomfortable. Yeah. Have you felt, is that a, reoccurring feeling in your life? Yes. Um, I think that as a kid, I felt it. Um, I was in the, you know, high achieving classes, whatever that means. Um, But I was basically one of the only black kids in the class. Mm -hmm. And I never really felt like a quote unquote 
nerd or like someone that, you know, they, all they cared about was academics. Um, for me, all I cared about was basketball and the summer was camps. <laughs> the summer was yeah. for camps. Like, the summer was not for me being in like some math course. The summer was like me trying to get my skills up. Mm-hmm. And so it was weird because I was with all these smart kids, but I didn't really have the makeup of a smart kid. And then I had this longing for my black friends that weren't in my classes. And I mm-hmm. felt very much in between, you know, kind of the nerdy white kids and the black kids that I wanted to hang out with who weren't in my classes because we, the, the, you know, the education system had so full of discrimination. Mm-hmm. And many times, if you don't look the part, you're going to get tracked into um, a class where you're given lower expectations. So I felt like I was in between two different worlds. And, you know, I felt that way, you know, in my adulthood and me trying to figure out my way when it comes to faith and religion. Mm-hmm. I didn't always fit in with the Christian crowd. I felt a little bit more, quote unquote, edgier, or which sure. doesn't, which means I wasn't that edgy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I felt yeah. a little bit more edgier. I felt a little bit more black, culturally centered mm-hmm. than a lot of the white assimilation that was happening in these the faith circles that I was in. And so, yeah, I always always felt different, and you know. Now that I'm in this mental health community, I don't feel that same way now. I feel mm-hmm. like these are my people, these are my tribe, and I'm gonna rock with us, you know, yeah. till the wheels fall off. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. Um, do you think there's like tension between because of the stereotypes and because of the discrimination that's inherent with the mental health um, system? between people of color and and white people when it comes to mental health like within mental health spaces you know because everyone can be mentally ill do you think there's like tension or misunderstanding there yeah yeah Uh, there's a hierarchy for sure and i think that black trans women and black trans folks um are at the bottom and Mm -hmm. you know i spoke about that before that I feel like mental health advocates like myself who are cis, like we got to step it up. You know, we really got to highlight um, communities that are more marginalized than us because it's not good enough for me to just share my lived experiences and then close the door and not talk about people who are more marginalized than I am. Yeah. And I think just for myself, I know that I need to step up because this, this, the suicide attempt statistics when it comes to the black trans community is ridiculous. Um, there was a, a, a study that said like one in three black trans youth have attempted wow. um, in the last year. Um, and then there was another study in 2015 that said uh, that black trans folks um, have a suicide attempt rate of like 47%, like 47% of them um, attempted suicide in their lifetime, which is much higher than the average. And, you know, but black trans folks, we're, they're not leading mental health campaigns. They're not leading suicide prevention campaigns. And I think that's the frustration that I have with kind of the mental health community as a whole is that I'm not seeing people who look like me um, leading these campaigns, even though Black trans folks are disproportionately affected by suicide, um, and as well as people who are border, who have borderline personality disorder yeah. like I do. Um, there's a statistic that says around one in 10 people with BPD die of suicide. That is um, horrific. Yeah. Um, and why do I not see people with BPD leading suicide prevention campaigns? It makes no sense. 
Um, we're the ones that use these services. We're the ones that call these suicide prevention lines. We call these text lines. We go to these mental hospitals. So we should be the ones telling you if they're good or not. Like I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of mm-hmm. tired of them saying, you know, hey, secure this number, you know, use yeah. this number, use this number, use this number which is great. I appreciate that you're giving me this resource, but we need to evaluate these resources and if they actually help and if they're actually accomplishing what they should accomplish. And when we're in the room who use these services, we can actually evaluate this this for you. Um, And so, yeah, I would just say, center people with lived experience in these suicide prevention campaigns. And it should reflect the statistics. It should reflect the need that's in our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I agree 100%. Um, I'm good on my end. Is there anything you want to say before we end this program? Yeah, I would just say encourage folks to go to beam.community slash Black Vision mm-hmm. um, to learn more about the Black Vision that we have for mental health that's rooted in our communities, is rooted in student loan forgiveness for therapists, uh, it's rooted in the defunding of the police. So I encourage folks to go to beam.community slash Black Vision as well. They can sign up to uh, join a committee that we're creating to dismantle systemic racism in the the mental health community. So we're building up a committee for that. So sign the interest form for that. And also if you would like to donate as well. So I uh, give Black affirming personal care items to mental hospital patients. Mm -hmm. Um, This is inspired by my second hospitalization where I felt like I was a burden to my mom and to all my friends. And so I just told my mom, don't come and visit me. Um, I'll be fine. I'll be okay. Uh, But that meant that I had no uh, personal care items. I had no clothes. I had no underwear. I had nothing. And um, I had to rely on the lost and found um, to get clothes. And it was a really kind of dehumanizing experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. And so I don't want that to happen to anybody else. And so I donate satin bonnets, I donate wave caps, I donate uh, Y2 combs. Uh, These are black hair care items that we need specifically for us that aren't given out in hospitals. Um, I also give out underwear and uh, pads and tampons and I give out bras. these things are, are fundamental to our dignity. And when we don't have these things, it can just really alter um, our mental health and our emotional health. And so, yeah, I give these donations to local hospitals and I'm trying to expand to more. And yeah, and those donations, 100% of what you give uh, go towards purchases uh, for mental, mental hospital patients. That's, that's amazing. It's really great work you're doing. Um, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And thank you so much for just holding space for me and engaging with me and my work. I really do appreciate it. 